On April 3rd in 1968, the Mason Temple in Memphis was packed. Memphis was a city in mourning. It was grappling with the with unrest over the deaths of two black employees of the Memphis Department of Public Works, employees who were crushed to death while taking cover from severe weather. Today marks the 55th anniversary of their deaths today. Under the slogan, I am a man, more than a thousand black employees were on strike and tensions were rising. So despite a bad thunderstorm that April night, the room was filled and there was one man the crowd wanted to hear from. Martin Luther King Jr. had visited Memphis twice before. He was trying to help the black workers get a living wage and decent working conditions. And that night he was back. He was delivering what would be his final speech the night before he was assassinated. Dr. King began his famous mountaintop speech by saying, something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. We have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. And the human rights revolution. If something isn't done and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Today in Memphis, hundreds gathered at Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church, just a few miles from the historic Bishop Charles Mason Temple, where King delivered that final speech. The room, again, was packed, and the city was again in mourning. This time over the death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols, a black man whose family calls him a beautiful soul, who died last month from injuries three days after five black Memphis police officers brutally beat him. Nichols' family and friends, mothers of other black people slain by police, government officials from across the country, even Vice President Kamala Harris, they were all there today for Tyree Nichols' funeral. Like that night in April 1968 when there was a thunderstorm, Nichols' loved ones and supporters braved an ice storm today to gather in that church and honor Nichols' life and to declare, as they did in a press conference last night, in the spirit of that strike in Memphis in April of 1968, they declared, I am a man. It is a simple declaration that this victim killed by a system of oppression was a man, a person, just like everyone else. And the system that killed him must change. Reverend Al Sharpton, founder of the National Action Network, delivered the eulogy today. He began with a ref reference to Dr. King in Memphis those 55 years ago. In the city that they slayed the dreamer, what has happened to the dream? Throughout his eulogy, the Reverend recalled history, black civil rights history, to make sense of why the crowd was gathered in Memphis today, why Tyree Nichols is dead, why his parents lost their son, who loved sunsets and photography and skateboarding, and most of all, his mother. 
why Tyree Nichols' son no longer has a father, and why, despite this tragedy, entire communities, whole cities even, continue to live in fear that this will happen again to someone else. Sharpton called on the mothers of Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner, two other black people killed by police, police officers, to stand. They were there to pay respects and to support Tyree Nichols' family. But to understand this pattern, why it exists, and what it might take to break it, Reverend Sharpton drew on memories of the past. We're not asking for nothing special. We're asking to be treated equal and to be treated fair. And just like they marched and boycotted and went to jail for nine years from the 55 Montgomery bus boycott, to the 64 Civil Rights Act. We gonna pay the same dues to get this George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Reverend, how long? I don't know how long. They didn't know how long it would be when they boycotted in the 50s. It's not about a timetable. It's that we cannot continue to live under these double standards and under these conditions. Those references to the 1955 bus boycott against segregation, which preceded the 1964 Civil Rights Act outlawing discrimination in public spaces, those were references to hard-won civil rights victories. They were meant to solve systemic problems in the American social fabric, ones that specifically disenfranchise black people. Reverend Sharpton, Nichols' family, and their attorneys have reminded us over the past month that America has a policing problem. And in our police departments, something is broken. In Memphis alone, where black people make up 65% of the city's population, they make up 86% of police use of force cases. They're overrepresented among use of force victims by a lot. And to many people, that would indicate a flaw in the system of policing. And that is why today, as they stood in front of Tyree Nichols' casket, Kamala Harris, Al Sharpton, Ben Crump, and Nichols' own mother reiterated that the thing that needs to change— the civil rights victory that needs to be won now is policing reform. I just need whatever that George Floyd bill we needed passed. Yeah. yeah. We need to take some action because there should be no other child that should suffer the way my son and all the other parents here have lost their children. We need to get that bill passed. Amen. Because if we don't, that blood, the next child that dies, that blood is going to be on their hands. To pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing bill, or even to decide on what's going to be in that final bill, requires a comprehensive understanding of the injustices that are written in the rules, the oppression that has been a feature of these systems and needs to be combated. It requires knowledge of the history that is present in all these moments, the Memphis of 1968 and the Memphis of 2023, the history behind the slaughter of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Laquan McDonald and Tyree Nichols. Knowledge and understanding of the system operating here is necessary to begin to fix it. And yet, at this very moment, this country and local leaders in this country are leading an effort to systemically whitewash the sins of the past, to undermine the honest conversations and classroom debates, to censor the lessons and the literature that grapple with the very issues that are central to these killings.
under those conditions, how do we ever repair the parts of our systems that ensure inequality and produce constant cycles of death and grief? How do we begin to stop this? Joining us now is Reverend Al Sharpton, who delivered the eulogy at Tyree Nichols' funeral today. He is also, of course, the president of the National Action Network and host of Politics Nation right here on MSNBC. We also have the great Maya Wiley, civil rights attorney and president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Rev, Ms. Wiley, Maya, thank you for being here today. Um, I'm sorry that our reunion has to happen under these circumstances. And Rev, we are also deeply grateful for everything that you did, not just for the Nichols family, but for the country today and somehow bending time space to come back up to New York to do this show. What was it like in that room today? There was clearly a lot of grief, but also anger and also a determination that we have to stop this. And the way to stop it is by having federal law. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up in uh, the northern part of the King movement after Dr. King was killed. Uh, Jesse Jackson, who mentored me and others, and Reverend William Jones taught me until you change legislation and make it a law, you can't really effectively change people's hearts. And I think we keep asking for policemen and others to redeem themselves mm-hmm. until they know there's going to be accountability and change law like I was taught. You're not going to stop this. They need to have qualified immunity off the table. Police feel that nothing's going to happen to me. And if you had qualified immunity off the table, which is one of the key components of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, policemen can uh, be leaving the home in the morning. Their wives will say, now, you be careful because we could lose the house. We could lose the car. There's no skin in the game. So we're trying to do what we know will work, and that is changing the law. And uh, yes, we won some cases recently. George Floyd, those cops in jail tonight. Right. Ahmed Aubrey, those people in jail tonight. So it's not just gaining political power. It's gaining change. But those are here and there. You need federal law that everyone would be held to the same standard. I mean, I would also say there's something about wanting to incentivize people to be humane to each other, right? You talk about skin in the game. What's so sad about it is that the notion of the the buy-in would have to happen punitively, right? Like, it's not that we can remind each other that we're in this together, that that, that anti-Blackness is a, a poison that spreads throughout the Black community as it does white communities and many other communities, and it needs to be solved but that you'd have to incentivize people by saying, oh, the law is going to come and get you. I do not believe those five black policemen would have done this to a white kid. The the, the argument is, well, crime is up in many areas, and that is true, and we ought to fight crime, and we do, all of us do, in all of our organizations. But the fact is, you know on the white side of town how to keep crime down without brutalizing and killing people. So use the same police force. It's not a different police department Mm -hmm. on our side of town. What works there will work here if we are respected. And I think that what's so egregious about this is just 10 minutes away from where Dr. King was killed fighting for city workers and police are also city workers. You have five black cops who wouldn't have had a job if it wasn't for the Martin Luther Kings of the world beat a black man to death. I don't care what they come up with on social media is the reason they beat a man to death who was unarmed and had not committed a crime. I I just uh, Maya, I can't get over that backdrop that the 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 rev so 
beautifully articulates and what is happening in terms of the culture wars that uh, are being perpetrated, I won't use any other word for it, in states like Florida, where you have a governor who is intent on erasing what to me feel like the gains of the civil rights era, the gains of the last 20 years, the cultural progress, the racial progress. I mean, how do you square the censorship that's happening in classrooms, the denial of history, the denial of of conversation around the sins of the past and systemic oppression, and what we see here playing out on the street, which is evidence of systemic oppression, of systems that are flawed? Because it's not a square, it's a circle. (laughs) And that circle is is exactly what the Rev is saying, which is we have a a system of laws uh, and principles that have not been equally applied. When we have achieved some measure of equality, of equal achievement, of getting some fairness, it's because we had to fight for it, even when it's inscribed in law. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Voting Rights Act had to be passed in 1965, proud to lead the coalition that helped get that passed in combination with civil rights organizations across the country. But it was because, not because, and Rev, you've, you've said this on voting rights, there was always a constitutional right to vote. So just like policing, Mm -hmm. there was always supposed to be the laws of protection. It's how we apply them. And your point about humanity, how can we have humanity when we don't learn our history? Yeah. Because to your point, you know, the part of what we just saw in the news today out of Florida was, you know, the college board with a curriculum and an advanced placement curriculum on it's the first day of Black History Month yes. on Black History. But what the link that DeSantis is trying to break and that too many politicians pushing division using race or sexual identity or any other number of things as a wedge between us is to deny that our history is at all connected to the experiences we're having. So let's remember what is historic today is not is not that Tyree Nichols is dead. That is common. What is historic is that anyone is paying any price mm. for it. That's what's historic. Yes, it was historic when when officers went down for murder for George Floyd's yeah. killing. That was historic. Being killed by police for driving while black is not. Historic. Is not. It's really... And I understand where you're coming from. And I understand how Memphis is being sort of held up. Ben Crump has said this should be a template, the, the, the sort of alacrity with which the system's moved to, to charge these officers, to fire these officers, to release the videotape. That should be a model for the nation for the next time a black person is killed by police. It's the next time the expectation that, oh, yes, there will be another innocent black person that's killed by police sometime in the near future. And we hope that law enforcement moves quickly to punish them. That's the part that I think is still so difficult to handle, you know, to to swallow, to just abide the notion that this violence continues, but maybe the circumstances around it can be made better. And we can't do it police department by police department or state by state. It must be federal law. That's why I said what I said, Reverend Jackson, Reverend Jones taught me. You've got to change the laws. Mm -hmm. We were raised in this. Her father was George Wiley, head of National Welfare Rights Organization. I was raised, as I said, in Operation Breadbasket. We were taught, drilled in this because we don't get anything out of this other than to try to do what is right. 
And what is right is to change the law. Otherwise, 20 years from now, what do we have? A lot of marches that achieve nothing that fundamentally changed how society operates to protect its citizens. You need law to do that. You, there was an important lawmaker at, at, the, at the funeral today, uh, the vice president of the United States. She herself emblematic of progress this country has made. Um, you asked her to speak. It didn't seem like she came with prepared remarks. She didn't. What's your impression of how this death in particular is changing the White House focus on police reform? I think that when she spoke and talked about how she was one of those in the Senate before she was vice president that authored the George Floyd law and pushed it forward. President Biden has said we need this law. Now we need the Senate. We need all of the Democrats and some well-meaning Republicans to say we can't keep being episodal and keep going from one death to the next. We need the issue now is voting rights and police reform. That is the civil rights challenges of the 21st century. We must meet the challenge. Do you think that that do you think we are in agreement on that? Those of us who want to see change, that this is a civil rights battle of our era? Yes, uh, you can't be for civil rights and not see the importance of protecting our right to decide who leads us, protecting our right to be free from police violence. There's nothing more fundamental to our rights as residents and citizens of this country than to be able to do both those things, literally to choose leaders and live and have anybody in a position of power to pay consequences for not paying attention to the same laws we all have to pay attention to. Now, I, I will also say, because um, the Rev is so right about this, it's not given, it's not ever given, it's demanded. Change and laws are demanded. And when we see the laws are not equally applied, that's why we have to have new laws that says, we figured out how you found a loophole, now we're going to close it. And when we see any politician of any party who claims to be in favor of civil rights, but lies about whether or not there's voter fraud or lies about whether or not closing poll sites in black communities keeps black people from being able to vote or lies when you have police officers at polling sites and suggest that you are not making people afraid to go cast their ballot when the very reality of the black existence is that you're safer if you avoid the police. That is not a democracy. And saving it is exactly what the civil rights movement has always done, fought for democracy and saved it. And the truth is, makes everybody safer, everybody stronger, everybody more empowered. And all I would say to anyone is any politician that seeks to divide us, that calls us names, that suggests that being woke is worse than being asleep, mm -hmm. is not a politician fighting for democracy and for every single resident of this country. I just hope that in 55 years, the people of Memphis do not need to eulogize another black person with signs saying, I am a man. Mm -hmm. Reverend Al Sharpton, Maya Wiley, thank you both for being here tonight. It is, we are, I am deeply appreciative of your words of wisdom and the fights you fight for all. Thank of you, Alex. When we come back, House Republicans have put firebrand Jim Jordan in charge of the subcommittee to investigate what they are calling the weaponization of the federal government. And now Democrats have chosen who will be going toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. Plus, a look at the elephant in the room. Literally, the elephant. Donald Trump wants the 2024 Republican presidential nomination all to himself. But the rest of his party? Maybe not so much. That's next.
everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Wise is Happening, author Ari Berman on his new book, Minority Rule, the right-wing attack on the will of the people and the fight to resist it. If we're going to be at a moment in time when so many people are saying we have to understand the Constitution as it was intended, then we have to understand that it was intended to check democracy, not to expand it. And we can have such a view of the Constitution that says that all of these institutions are so amazing when it's so obvious that they made a lot of mistakes and that a lot of it needs to be corrected. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Donald Trump is about to get his first bona fide competitor for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. Today, the Charleston Post and Courier was the first to report that former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is running for president and will officially announce her campaign two weeks from today. We also learned today that Haley's fellow South Carolinian, Republican Senator Tim Scott, is set to hold events in Iowa and South Carolina amid speculation about his own presidential run. And yesterday, former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan told Fox News that he is also giving very serious consideration to his own run in 2024. It is clear that Trump's early entry into the race has failed to dissuade potential challengers ahead of what could be a crowded primary field. But right now, polling continues to show that the only potential candidate who's within spitting distance of Donald Trump is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has yet to declare his own candidacy. Now, today, Governor DeSantis continued to press the issue Republican primary voters apparently care most about, and that issue is owning the libs. And we just added, because I think it needs to be done, uh, no tax permanently on gas stoves. They want your gas stove, and we're not going to let that happen. They're not going to let that happen. That was Florida Governor DeSantis today announcing that his big new policy plan for the state of Florida is... 6% off your gas range when you use the coupon code DeSantis. Believe it or not, that kind of politics gets you second place in the early Republican primary. But let us be clear. Let us make no bones about this. The front runner as of now is still Donald Trump. And the Republican strategy for defeating Trump, (laughs) preventing him from being the nominee, if you will, is to essentially sit around and hope something bad happens. As The Atlantic's McKay Coppins reports in a new piece for The Atlantic, Ask Republicans how they plan to move on from Trump, and the discussion quickly veers into the realm of hopeful hypotheticals. Maybe he'll get indicted and his legal problems will overwhelm him. Maybe he'll flame out early in the primaries or just get bored with politics and wander away. Maybe the situation will resolve itself naturally. He's old, after all. How many years can he have left? Joining us now is Josh Marshall, founder and editor-in-chief of Talking Points Memo. Josh, thanks for being here. Um, let me Thanks just for having me. start with a question that confuses me, and that is, which Republican Party do Nikki Haley and Larry Hogan think they are running to potentially be the titular head of? Because it's hard for me to imagine, and Mike Pence for that matter, it's hard for me to imagine any of them getting having any base of support in the GOP. Is this a fool's errand, or do you think they might be onto something? 
Well, I don't, I can't imagine Nikki Haley would win the nomination, but at least she's somewhat in line with the politics of the current Republican party. Hogan, you know, he's almost like, he's certainly considered an honorary Democrat by a lot of Republicans. So, you know, they're not going, neither of them are, are going anywhere. What really strikes me most about, if you can call it this, you know, kind of incipient primary campaign is that. You know, everything, even though Donald Trump is clearly much weaker than he was, he's having a hard time raising money. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he's, his his polls aren't as good. He's got people, you know, who are willing to challenge him and stuff like that. But the whole race is still defined by him. Everything about Ron DeSantis is just he's the one who might be able to get rid of Trump. He's the get rid of there's Trump. There's the get rid of Trump right. candidate. And then there's a bunch of other people who, who uh, you know, may, sometimes they, they you know, get over one percent in the polls. You know, you have those these, you know, GOP presidential primary polls. And often like Liz Cheney is fourth at like three percent. Right. So people like Nikki Haley and uh, Mike Pompeo, they're all at like one percent or like zero percent. So, yeah, it's it's that is really the thing right now. Clearly, Donald Trump is a lot weaker. He's got these, he's got all these legal problems. You even see in some ways in his events now, he's kind of off his game. He doesn't, he doesn't quite have it the same way. But still, with, for the GOP, it's like, you know, dragging around a half ton anchor on your motorboat. Right. You don't <laughs> it's not that you're going to go down to in the in, to the bottom of the uh, bottom of the river and go down with the anchor, but you can't really go anywhere else either. And and that's really kind of uh, where it is. And, and that's why I think it's possible. I'm not saying it's likely, but it's possible. You know, we're going to have this uh, primary campaign. Donald Trump is going to end up pulling you know, 30% in, in each of the primaries, pretty similar to what he did in 2016. And a lot of uh, Republicans are just going to say, well, there's kind of nothing else we can do. So I guess we're going to do this again, well, even though probably majority kind of would just assume he like McKay Coppin said, you know, maybe he'll just get bored and Walk away wander or away, or, like or like I mean, really, they they, they talk about him. I mean, they talk explicitly. <laughs> Peter Meyer, former congressperson, yeah. says, "I've heard from a lot of people who will go on stage and put on the red hat, the MAGA hat, and then give me a call the next day and say, I can't wait until this guy dies.' And it's like, good lord. I mean, but that <laughs> dark humor, though it may be, is is really yeah. seemingly the strategy here. They are content to literally like let nature take its course, rather than." And usurp, take away the, the the scepter from the king. It is shocking to me that in this moment where so many lessons have been learned, where the country has borne witness to an insurrection at the direction of Donald Trump, the GOP still cannot say, has lost seats, lost power. They cannot say it is time for you to exit stage right. And I, the only indication we have that anybody has chilled in their ardor is the, the money. The, the, the fundraising figures are the only yeah. indication I see that Trump may actually be in trouble, right? He's la- raised less than $10 million since he announced his bid for the White House, compared to a similar period in 2020 between the election and January 6th, where he raised $250 million. I mean, do you think it is possible that the donor class, in the end, oh, the irony, will be the ones that take Donald Trump off stage, right? Or do you think they acquiesce as well? 
Well, you know, it's it's funny because there's two there's there's two donor classes. There are the you know dozen or so billionaires who fund most of the Republican Party right now. And most of them at the beginning of 2016 were like, oh, Donald Trump, scoundrel, I I can't abide him. And then they all fell in line and gave him money. And then you've got the small donors and this, you know, the 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 sort of the paltry uh, money he's raised so so far that that's the small donors. You know, I I think they'll come around. And in the end of the day, look, we all need to remember what happened in 2016. Everybody in the GOP was against Donald Trump and then he won and they all fell in line. And I think it's quite possible that that same thing is ha- is going to happen again. The one thing I think may be different, and this is where, what I think really is potentially Donald Trump's weakness, is that in in 2016, Donald Trump took over the Republican Party by something like shock and awe. You know, he he's he's first he's a joke. Then he's winning some uh, he's winning some uh, primaries. Suddenly he has the nomination. And then a lot of Republicans are like, well, OK, we'll lose and then we'll rebuild the party afterwards. And then he becomes president. And it all kind of happened so fast. No one quite knew what to do about it. But now you do have for elected officials, for for some Republican voters like the last three elections have not gone that great for them. Uh, he may be in jail by the end of 2024. So I do think there's a sense in which possibly a critical mass of Republicans are like, we did this already. We're not going to fall in line quite the way we did. On the other hand, they may well just fall in line. I think that's (laughs) Probably the the more likely of you know the two the two possibilities. It's just wow. Ron DeSantis is offering six percent off a gas stove. That amounts to a platform in the GOP these days. Josh Marshall. How can that that will be that will certainly be the central platform plank in the twenty twenty four GOP platform. Hot tip for twenty twenty four. Founder and editor in chief yes. of Talking Points Memo. Josh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we will talk about what the FBI was doing at President Biden's vacation home today and what they did find and what they did not find. Plus, House Democrats pick their members for the Republicans' new subcommittee on the so-called so-called weaponization of the federal government. And two of their picks were heavy hitters for each of the Trump impeachment proceedings. I'll talk to one of them coming up next. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.
Today, we learned the new Republican-controlled subcommittee to investigate the so-called weaponization of the federal government will have nine Democrats sitting on the panel. Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett was selected today by House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries to be the top Democrat on that committee. You might remember Congresswoman Plaskett was one of the nine impeachment managers during Donald Trump's second impeachment in 2021. Joining her on the Republicans' weaponization subcommittee are eight other Democratic members, including the lead counsel from Trump's first impeachment, now freshman Congressman Dan Goldman. Republicans are expected to use the subcommittee to investigate the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the intelligence community. Just last week, the 12 Republicans, led by Chairman Jim Jordan, met to discuss the possibility of unilaterally issuing subpoenas to witnesses. And they held that meeting without their Democratic colleagues, which is, hmm. But now that the Democrats are actually in the room, what are they hoping to do? What can they actually do? Joining us now is New York Congressman Dan Goldman. Congressman, thank you for being with us tonight. May I say in advance, good luck on this committee. And, what, you know, what is the playbook here for Democrats? We already have indications that Dem Republicans are going to use this committee to launch all manner of uh, questionable inquiries. Uh, why? What is how what's the playbook that you can use to effectively stop the worst, the most adverse effects uh, and narratives from emanating from this committee? Well, you're right, Alex. The, the breadth of the jurisdiction of this subcommittee is really stunning, including having uh, authority to investigate ongoing criminal investigations, which is a very scary thought because, of course, uh, the Department of Justice must keep confidential their ongoing investigations. But why do they want to do that? Well, there are several ongoing investigations of Donald Trump, but there also are ongoing investigations, including the January 6th insurrection, related to Republican members of the House. And I think what we are going to have to do on this committee is recenter this conversation around our democratic institutions, the rule of law, and the foundations of a rules-based society that we live in. I had, ten, I had 10 years of experience as a federal prosecutor in the Department of Justice, and I worked with the FBI every day. I worked as a staffer on the House Intelligence Committee, and I understand the uh, intelligence community. And I'm going to bring that experience as a sober and truthful reminder to Jim Jordan and the other Republicans as to how things actually work and how important these executive agencies are to our community safety and to our national security. Congressman, you are going to have a lot of work to do. Um, but with that mandate, you know, that this committee is supposed, subcommittee is supposed to be investigating the weaponization of the federal government, there is actually an investigation that I think is warranted, and that is the Durham investigation over at DOJ. The New York Times had some explosive reporting on the ways in which then-Attorney General Bill Barr, what sounds like colluded with the, uh, with, with, with John Durham, the, the special counsel who was retained to investigate the orange origins of the Trump-Russia investigation. And the relationship between those two men sounded inappropriate. There were late nights drinking scotch, a sort of coziness that, that sounded in, inappropriate for someone who's supposed to be an independent investigator. And there was also a lot of, there are a lot of questions around a potential criminal investigation into suspicious financial dealings relating to then-President Donald Trump. Can, I know that you have sent, uh, you and Congressman Ted Lieu have called on the Inspector, Inspector General at the DOJ, Michael Horowitz, to look into whether Durham or Bill Barr 
violated any laws, DOJ rules, or practices or canons of legal ethics when it came to the Durham review. Can you talk a little bit more about what you see and what is a red flag for you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you want to talk about the weaponization of the federal government, let's look at the four-year John Durham investigation, which yielded two indictments, both of which were acquittals. And even Bill Barr admitted that the purpose of those indictments was not actually to convict the defendants, but was to effectively launder a conspiracy theory about the Russia investigation and its origins through a criminal prosecution. There are sirens blaring all around this investigation from an excessive abuse of power to prosecutorial misconduct to the politicization and public speaking against department practice about an ongoing investigation, even to the point where two prosecutors on the Durham investigation resigned in protest. Just to be clear, before the Trump administration, that type of thing almost never happened. It was like a regular occurrence during the Trump uh, uh, Trump administration. So I really hope that if Jim Jordan and the Republicans want to investigate the weaponization of the federal government, that we start with a four-year waste of time and waste of resources that was the John Durham investigation. um, Congressman, we know that Bill Barr this evening in an interview with the L.A. Times addresses the the criminal and the the tip that effectively Bill Barr got um, about potential uh, suspicious financial dealings related to the former president and the criminal investigation that had to be part that was subsumed into or was adopted into the Durham probe. Bill Barr is saying that Tip was not directly about Trump. That's a direct quote from the story. And it was part of it was folded into Durham's inquiry because it did have a relationship to the Russiagate stuff. It was not completely separate. Therefore, it should have been in Durham's purview, according to Barr. And this is according to Bill Barr, turned out to be a complete non-issue. Are you satisfied with that? Are we going to hear more from John Durham about what exactly this tip was and what exactly this investigation is? We better. Bill Barr should not be talking about it. He's not the special counsel. It's an independent special counsel. He should not be talking about any of this. He's not the attorney general. So we better hear from John Durham in his report everything about that tip. And I certainly hope that we will get uh, more information about that. Uh, You know, Bill Barr is continuing on his reputation laundering campaign uh, where he claimed that that it it doesn't hold water, that there was a thin rationale for opening this investigation. He's right. It doesn't hold water. There was no reason for it. The inspector general did an investigation of this exact topic. And yet Bill Barr and John Durham tried to convince the independent inspector general to reverse his conclusion that the origins of the Russia investigation were legitimate. So there are real problems all over here. And I really do hope that the Department of Justice inspector general digs into this with the same uh, intensity and aggressiveness that he dug into the origins of special counsel Mueller's investigation. I mean, talk about quite literally the weaponization of the federal government. You're on the subcommittee. Good luck to you, Congressman Dan Goldman. And thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. We have more to come, including how day one on the job for the Trump allied special counsel investigating President Biden's handling of classified documents, how on day one there was an FBI search of President Biden's beach house. Stay with us. 
President Biden's Rehoboth, Delaware beach house has six bedrooms, five bathrooms, and apparently zero classified documents. The president's personal lawyer announced today that federal investigators searched the property with Biden's permission from 8.30 a.m. to noon today and did not find any classified material. Joining me to discuss how and why this happened is Carol Lennick, national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Carol, thank you for being here. From your exhaustive reporting, we know what some of these other searches turned up. They were usually triggered by the Biden team finding classified information. Do we have any idea why the FBI searched Biden's beach house today? You know, Alex, it's a great question. And the reason I'm told by sources is to be exhaustive and because the Biden uh, team, his personal lawyers, and of course, allies at the White House kind of want this over and done with. They want to figure out the totality of places where records may have been sent from the time of his vice presidency that ended in 2017 in January. And they want to know the totality of records that might be outside government possession and make sure they're secure. You know, uh, I think you've made this point really well before, which is that the Biden team as soon as they first found records in November of this past year, they alerted the government officials responsible for securing such documents at the National Archives. And then the Department of Justice began the standard kind of process for making sure they secured such records. They told the Biden team to hold up, let them know all the places where records could have been sent and to stop reviewing and and searching for any classified records. The result has been politically painful for President Biden because it's been a drip, drip, drip of discoveries. But behind the scenes, I am told this is all about cooperating with the Department of Justice and trying to defer to them in their searches. We think today was the first day of work for the special counsel, Robert Herr. Do we think there is any coincidence in the timing of this search of the beach house and his first day? What is your expectation as far as what he might be doing in his first week or weeks on the job? So I don't think that there is a dramatic connection here. This is based on the fact that sources have told us the special counsel has been briefed for weeks while he's not started in the actual location of his workplace until today, that he's been briefed on what's been going on and staying abreast of developments, and that this is yet another search to one of the several follow-up searches to make sure all the records that might have been shipped to various locations are returned to government possession and are found. Now, I want to stress to you that Biden's personal attorneys had no reason to believe there was anything at the Wilmington home and they did their own search uh, there. And then they had no reason to believe there were classified records in the Rehoboth home, but they did a search there. And now the FBI has followed up behind them in both places and has, has concluded, at least in the case of the beach house, there's no there there. Maybe they'll find a missing pair of sunglasses in their next search. Carol Lennick, national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you, as always, Carol, for your time and great reporting. We'll be right back. Thank you, Alex. I want to show you some pictures. These were all taken today in Yangon, the largest city in Myanmar, the country where my mom was born and raised only. Then it was called Rangoon, and the country was called Burma. Yangon has about 7 million people, almost as many as New York City. So the place is always busy and noisy and colorful, but it wasn't today. 
Today, people in Yangon and all over Myanmar stayed home to silently protest the violent military coup that raised the country's path to democracy two years ago. This silent protest might not be enough to kick the military out, but for those people living under the struggle of Myanmar's military dictatorship, silence is a way of saying, you can rule the country, but you can't rule us. Since the military took over, the level of violence, especially in Myanmar's countryside, has reached the level of a new civil war. Soldiers are bombing and burning villages and raping women. In the city, activists and politicians are being arrested and tortured and executed. According to local watchdog groups, nearly 3,000 civilians have been killed since the army assumed power. Thousands more have been arrested. And while all of this is important to report, you should also know that much like it happened here in the U.S., this all began with a lie. Unwilling to accept the results of the 2020 election, the military claimed election fraud, a claim that was not backed up by objective election observers. They then arrested many democratic, democratically elected leaders and staged a coup. Soon after, they declared a state of emergency and promised to resume holding elections after the emergency ended. Two years later, that emergency status was extended again today, which means no elections will be held in the near future. Myanmar, Burma, my mother's country, continues to be a dictatorship, and it is a lesson to everyone who takes democracy for granted. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. 